Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Religion on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanova, and I will be your host today. I'm speaking with Dr. Megan Goodwin, Visiting Lecturer of Religion at Northeastern University. She is Program Director for Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded program hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion, and with Elise Morgenstein first, co-host of Keeping It 101, a Killjoy's Introduction to Religion podcast. We'll be speaking about her 2020 book, Abusing Religion, Literary Persecution, Sex Scandals, and American Minority Religions. Dr. Goodwin, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Great. Uh, So to begin with, uh, could you talk a little bit about your research background and how this book kind of came about? Sure. I went to grad school because I thought I was going to work on witches. Um, (laughs) Turns out there are not a whole lot of jobs for people who work on witches, but jokes on me, there are not a whole lot of jobs, period. So (laughs) I got to grad school and my advisor encouraged me to get to the root of the questions that I was trying to ask. Mm -hmm. And the project emerged around questions of where bad sex and bad religion overlap and the way that we in what's now the United States use sex to regulate religion and we use religion to regulate sex, even and maybe especially in spaces that aren't overtly religious themselves. So spaces like courtrooms and public media, things like that. Um, and so just to define sort of the basic terms, right, uh, what are the, how are minority religions classified in the United States? So what are we talking about when we say a minority religion? So uh, minority religion isn't a legal classification. It's my attempt to um, offer an alternative to something like a new religious movements and which is not to say that like um, Islam is a new religious movement. It's been here for a minute. But uh, I started my studies in the field of new religious movements. And the longer I was looking at groups that get called cults, the more I was realizing that the novelty of them, the newness was the least interesting thing to me. So in new religious movement studies, we look at the Shakers as as an NRM, right? They get started in the late 18th century. Nobody in NRMs talks about Mormonism. Church of Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ of Latter-day Saints or any of its offshoots as a new religious movement, despite the fact that it's younger than the Shakers. So something is going on there. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. I decided what I wanted to look at was where and how specific religions or uh, strains of religions, so certain kinds of Christianity, get marginalized and on what terms. So when I'm looking at American minority religions, I'm looking at traditions that fall outside of legal protections, of public approval, of any sort of mm, anything that that gets qualified as a bad religion. And when we're talking about bad religion, we're looking at religions that aren't afforded the protection of, say, the First Amendment, right? If we are supposed to mm, treat all religions equally, what are the religions that don't get treated equally if a person from that tradition is incarcerated or a group in that tradition decides they want to live near to but not in a town in Texas, for example, and want to practice a form of Christianity that makes space for communal living and apocalypticism and also polygamy, for example, and what happens Mm, legally and culturally when we try to do that religion differently. And what your book really focuses on is um, the way that this kind of discourse, as you call it, of minoritization focuses on allegations of sexual predation as kind of the key or the the main threat that it poses to American society. So why is that such a big focus? 
because Americans over-signify sex. We understand it as the most important thing about us. And obviously, it's never just sex. The way that we understand sex in the U.S. also has to do with gender and race and ability and economics and all of that. But we react in these huge, spectacular ways when we feel that sex is being done wrong. So the reason I wanted to focus on the space where sex gets used to minoritize religions is because sex is so effective at minoritizing religions. It's a space where we can say, oh, you're not just different, you're wrong, and therefore you must get out. Or, you know, have tanks sent into your front lawn, something like that. So it sort of serves as a proxy for all the kind of uh, anxiety that comes along with uh, what's perceived to be an outsider religion. I mean, I, I'm i not sure if it's a proxy so much as it, it is a – getting Foucaultian in my brain. It's a technology. It's, it is a, a <laughs> right, space right. where we create folks who either do or do not fit into our idea of what a real, true, moral American is. It really kind of zeroes in, in in your book on the way that you know there's this kind of idea in American society that we have re- absolute religious freedom and anyone can practice the way they want. And yet this really highlights the way that religions that are accepted are expected to reinforce a certain uh, standards of social behavior, for example. Very much so. Yeah, this is a space where my students kind of always struggled because we start almost all of my classes by talking about what the constitutional for protection, uh, sorry, what the constitutional protections for religion are and what's now the United States. And we talk about disestablishment and we talk about free exercise. And I say, great, free exercise. That means as long as it's religious, you can do whatever you want. Like, oh, oh no, you sweet summer children. (laughs) It it means not that at all. And it is interesting to me as someone who studies religion and sex and, and quote unquote new religions, that the space where we first define what free exercise is in what's now the United States is specifically around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the practice of polygamy. So it is around this different kind of Christianity, which gets gets understood as a different kind of whiteness. And the reason that it must be defined is because they are doing sex differently and quote unquote wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the narratives that you focus on in the book are what you describe as popular pulp nonfiction narratives. Yes. Um, so, so what are those, first of all? <laughs> They're trash. <laughs> They're garbage books. Uh, so they are books that uh, get marketed to a general audience. So these are not textbooks. There are things that you would pick up in an airport that I always think of it as like things that would show up in my mom's book club right? Mm -hmm, Where mm -hmm. regular folks who are not spending their entire early adulthood in classrooms uh, would pick up these books and be titillated and intrigued by what feels like an an insight, a, a like peek into a minoritized community. And the problem with books like Not Without My Daughter or uh, Under the Banner of Heaven is that they present a really skewed portrait of minoritized traditions in, in what's now the U.S. And so the folks that read these books actually know less about like Mormonism or Islam than they did before they picked up the book. I have to admit that I, I'm one of the people who was very much taken in by Under the Banner of Heaven when it first came out. Yeah, it's, so, I mean, this yeah. is the thing that's hard. Krakauer's a really good writer. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, didn't talk to any Mormon fundamentalist women who actually wanted to be part of the community. There's there's no space for them to speak in his book. He went into the book determined to show that Mormon fundamentalism and thus Mormonism and thus religion – are dangerous and violent and irrational. And those are the voices that get to speak in his narrative. It's very compelling. It's just also crap. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So of all, I mean, there's so many of these, right? So how did you choose the ones that uh, you focus on in the book? Well, so I was looking at, (sighs) I was looking at captivity narratives across the board when I was first pulling this book together. But I realized that what I wanted to focus on were captivity narratives that had demonstrable and trackable impact in the American religious, legal, cultural sphere. And I wanted to look at (sighs) 
books that were looking specifically at traditions that have kind of always haunted uh, the idea of America. So we were concerned about witches and Satan before there was even a United States. For as long as there have been Muslims and Mormons in what's now the United States, we have been very anxious about them. And those have been religious anxieties, those have been sexual anxieties, and those have been racial anxieties. So to look at the way that they have always sort of haunted uh, the U.S. was really important to me. But also... There is a moment in American history where the idea of having the right kind of sex and having the right kind of morals, which it gets stripped out of religiosity and just being the right kind of person, consolidates, and that's in the 1970s. So after Roe v. Wade, you have a huge, especially but not exclusively white Christian anxiety around losing the country, anxieties around abortion and contraception, around gay people insisting that they're people and we treat them like people, uh, around women working out of the home. So there's a gendered and a sexed and also a raced anxiety in the 1970s. And we see an unprecedented confederacy of different kinds of Christianities coming together to arbitrate what kind of sex makes you a good American? So um, it is not a unique moment, but it is an important moment in American history. And so I wanted to look at books that emerge around the fault lines of American sex and American religion after 1979 and 1980. Uh, and then you talk about this kind of uh, fever pitch of paranoia around religious difference in the 80s with a satanic panic and so forth. Very much so, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so another term that was really, I think, interesting and uh, perfect way to describe this is contraceptive nationalism, to describe the, the way that American religious outsiders are characterized as a sexual menace. Mm -hmm. So what, is, what does this entail? What's the stake in its reinforcement? So when we're looking at contraceptive narrative, <laughs> I can speak. When we're looking at contra <laughs> contraceptive, <laughs> when we're looking at contraceptive nationalism, this is a rhetorical device that tries to protect both white American women and children, and the idea of America from infiltration, contamination, dare we say, insemination by religious and sexual outsiders. So the idea is to tell stories about what happens when we let religion and sex be too free. I mean, sure, freedom is all nice and good. America loves freedom. You know, America plus freedom equals BFF. But <laughs> mm, there are those who just happen to either be not Christian or Christian in the wrong way, who happen to be not white or white in the wrong way who want to take advantage of our freedoms, these stories tell us. And what happens when we do not guard our freedoms is that our white women and children are sexually defiled, contaminated, preyed upon. So we're looking at any narrative that tries to protect the American body politic from insemination by religio-sexual predators so that we can maintain the integrity of America as, we're not saying this out loud, but a white Christian nation, or at least a nation that prioritizes specific kinds of Christianity and specific kinds of whiteness. And this is a time you alluded to this before that uh, Christian, the mainstream Christian denominations that didn't really get along so much before sort of start to form a coalition. Yeah, the Catholic piece weirded me out, man. Yeah. So it's, if you don't work on American religious history, I think it's hard to get a sense of just how bizarre this moment is. But so for most of the history of what's now the United States, Roman Catholics have been religious outsiders and they were minoritized again on these racial and sexual points. We have stories even up to the 1960s about uh, physical and sexual abuse happening in Catholic schools, in monasteries, in, um, convents, basically Catholics being not quite American, not quite white in the right way, and certainly of sexual danger to quote unquote real Americans. This is as public as JFK being in front of a group of Southern Baptist ministers in 1960, telling them he's running for president and he promises if he gets elected, he's not going to let the Pope run the country. Like there is a huge mm -hmm very well-established anxiety around Roman Catholicism owing its true allegiance to the Pope and not to the U.S. 
And then suddenly, in the 1970s, and specifically in response to Roe v. Wade and the legalization of abortion, kind of, you see an alliance forming between many different kinds of Protestant Christianity, but also, and for the first time in American history, including Roman Catholicism. Not so many like Catholics. Catholics still not super welcome to sit with us, but Roman Catholic sexual morality as a way of articulating what American sexual value should look like. And that's interesting and super weird. Abortion historically had not been a, it had been understood in the U.S. as a Catholic issue. Different denominations, different Protestant denominations had different perspectives on it. Some were okay, some were not. Mostly they weren't talking about it. Contraception, overwhelmingly a Catholic issue. Many Protestant denominations in favor of contraception. Until this moment in the 1970s, where we see the moral majority and the new Christian right emerge, and suddenly you have folks who have spent their entire religious public career saying, oh, the Catholics are not like us, they are not real Americans, they can't sit with us, being like, you know what, they got it right. But only about sex. And that, again, is fascinating to me. So we are seeing, particularly Jerry Falwell and new Christian right folks, adopting Roman Catholic sexual values rhetoric, but not any Catholic rhetoric around mm, the labor movement or mm -hmm. nuclear disarmament or like the environment. It's only sex. And this is one of the spaces that, that made me really want to dig into stories like the ones in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of a, a you know contemporary Catholic politicians who are always banging the the anti-abortion drum, and yet, God forbid, anybody mentions what the Catholics call the seamless garment approach, right? But with, which also has to do with the death penalty. Yeah, why aren't we yeah. talking about Catholic perspectives mm -hmm. on the death penalty? Why aren't those equally valid? Where is the Catholic social or the Catholic worker tradition in any of this? Not so mm -hmm. much, but. Increasingly, since the 1970s, and certainly under George W. Bush, Catholic morality around sex becomes American morality. And that is fascinating and has only, I mean, has only intensified. Truly, the U.S. Uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops has more political weight than it ever has. But we also see this being adopted and normalized as just kind of American values. And the, the case that I come back to always is Hobby Lobby, because the argument that contraception and abortion are basically the same thing is 100%, not just a Catholic argument, but is a, a Catholic argument under John Paul II. This is a yeah. big, very 1980s. We see Reagan in, engaging in this rhetoric a lot. But to have it codified by the Supreme Court of the United States in this Hobby Lobby case, where they're saying, okay, well, scientifically, no, but there is a sincerely held belief that contraception and abortion are the same thing. And so we have to honor that belief. And so mm, these companies, which are privately held, uh, don't have to adhere to the contraceptive mandate of the Affordable Care Act. It is wackadoo. And I, I don't know what to do with it, except do a lot of yelling on the internet. So. <laughs> Yeah, and it makes me think, I mean, you mentioned that uh, prior to uh, Roe v. Wade, a lot of Protestants were pro-contraception. And yeah. I think it was la last summer I did an interview with Melissa Wilde, who wrote a book about the history of the American contraceptive movement. Mm. And she talks about how in one of the reasons that many Protestant churches supported contraception was actually because of this anxiety over this perceived uh, Catholics having too many children, right? And mm -hmm. the Catholic side was very much anti-contraception. And then you get this coalition that, that starts to form in the 70s as a response to this perceived kind of liberalization of sexual morality. Very much so, yes. Yeah. Um, and then the, this term that you use, um, which I, if you could talk a little bit more about that, is small C Christian. So yeah. So small C Christian is basing or is building on the work of folks like Winnie Sullivan and Tracy Fessenden, who are arguing that we normalize and naturalize and kind of strip the serial numbers off Protestant Christianity in what are supposed to be secular spaces. So uh, Sullivan's work looks at it in the court systems where you have judges adjudicating cases about religion based on their own personal understandings of religion, which just because mm, specific kinds of white Christianity are like the air we breathe in the U.S., 
uh, they are importing Christian assumptions about what religion looks like, what religious people should do, without even necessarily recognizing that they are Protestant assumptions. We see a similar argument in Love the Sin, which is Jacobson and Pellegrini. I freaking love this book. And they look at that specifically in Supreme Court cases around sex and sexuality and the way that Protestant understandings of uh, what counts as religion and what doesn't smuggle in these Protestant assumptions. Fessenden looks at it in print culture. Uh, Lynn Gerber actually does some really great work around this in uh, Seeking the Straight and Narrow. But what all of those definitions have in common uh, are that they're looking at Protestantism uh, in the absence of Catholic thought, values, culture. So as I was saying, uh, in the 1970s, we see the importation of Catholic sensibilities around sex um, again, arguably for the first time in this American moral discourse. So when we're thinking about the way that Christianity and Christian assumptions shape the American public sphere, I think it's important that we acknowledge that Catholicism is now a part of that and specifically a part of that when we're thinking about what good sex looks like in America. So it's small c Christian rather than small p Protestant uh, because Catholics are Catholics are helping shape this moral landscape. I mean, this is something that's personally familiar to me because I'm from a minority religion, Judaism. Mm. Um, and I mean, the extent to which sort of Protestant religious discourse shapes even the way that pretty much all non-Orthodox Jews in America, at least on some level, start to perceive their own religious tradition through this Protestant prism. It really is so powerful. And yet um, it, we don't always notice it unless it's pointed out like this. Yeah. Well, and for non-Christian religions, it's often a survival strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want to be afforded the protections of quote unquote real religion, you have to look or at least approximate real religion, which just so happens to look like very specific kinds of white Christianity. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so you write in the introduction, not all stories about women are feminist stories. Um, and you talk about how the religious sexual abuse narratives have been deployed to maintain a sort of a heteropatriarchal gender dorm, and as well as white supremacy. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so I would argue, for example, that like Not Without My Daughter is not a feminist yes. story. <laughs> this does not make space for the equality of people of all genders, right? Uh, so they, stories about strong women are often embraced, um, I think, particularly by liberal white feminists as feminist stories. I mean, Betty Mahmoudi, um, via like Sally Field's portrayal of her in the movie, became this like second wave feminist icon because she resisted an abusive partner and, and got out. Um, and again, I, I only have Betty Mahmoudi's word for what happened to her. And I, I believe her that she, uh, underwent and survived abuse. The space where this story is not a feminist story, uh, is the space where every other woman in the book sucks. Uh, and particularly the Muslim women. All of the Muslim women have been brainwashed. There is no space for a woman to have decided that Islam is a good way for her to be in the world. Muslim equals bad, and that includes Muslim women. And there is no space for, in this like very Sabah Mahmoud-inflected sort of way, there's no space for a negative agency for folks who have decided that what they want is to submit their lives to the will of God. That makes them in, in Mahmoudi's uh, telling, stupid and animalistic and violent and predatory in similar ways, although n less overtly violent ways than Muslim men. Um, and in, in terms of the Not Without My Daughter, you wrote that this book had major, not only sort of after effects for the way that Muslims in the U.S. were perceived, but even foreign policy implications. Yeah, Bill Clinton passed a friggin' law about... <laughs> international child abduction and the only person he name checks in the bill is Betty Mahmoudi. It is unreal. You also have uh, the the movie even being entered as evidence in divorce proceedings uh, as evidence for why Muslim men should not have custody for their children. And uh, 
it's particularly interesting because the more time I've, I've spent around custody law in the U.S., I'm realizing that that myth of like, oh, women always get their kids is uh, deeply untrue, particularly when there are allegations of abuse. Um, if it is a white family where the woman is coming in and saying, my husband is abusing my child, by and large, statistically, the, the dad gets the kids. So for this story to emerge as a reason why Muslim men cannot be trusted with their children, again, has both religious and racial implications. It also ruined the dating lives of a number of Muslim men, as we know from uh, <laughs> the online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I, it's been many years since I saw the movie, but I went back before our interview and watched the trailer for Not Without oh God, My I'm Daughter. Sorry. And, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, but I was really struck by uh, one of this, you know, one of the parts of the trailer where they're showing the, you know, all the harrowing scenes that are happening to Sally Field's character yeah. interspersed with her do, uh, having a Christian kind of prayer with her daughter. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the implication certainly is that, well, Islam is oppressive and Christianity is liberatory. It is, but it's funny. Uh, both in the book, uh, the, the trailer makes some choices, but both in the book and the movie, Sally Field, sorry, Betty Mahmoudi's <laughs> religion is not emphasized at all. She like offhandedly mentions that I think she's Lutheran, but right. it comes up like once in the book. It is, she is American and access to contraception, interestingly, is an American right. It's like a very 1970s space because mm-hmm. this book would have been very different written in the 90s. Um, but that's actually uh, where I started theorizing contraceptive nationalism is there is a scene in, uh, not without my daughter, not the movie, they didn't <laughs> Right. No, of course. But in in the book, where Betty Mahmoudi is concerned that her husband, who's a medical doctor, is going to realize that she's had an IUD implanted, and she's worried that he's he's going to beat her to death. So she has this like vividly narrated scene of using the tweezers from her manicure kit to remove her IUD while she's locked in the bathroom, where the the. Muslim masculinity, the way that she's described it, is basically forcing her to sexually violate herself uh, to stay alive. It is incredibly violent and incredibly gory. Does not at all map onto my experiences of having an IUD removed, but you know, every person's body mm-hmm. is different. But the the way that she talks about herself personally being violated, but also her entitlement to bodily autonomy, uh, to reproductive technologies that should let her decide whether or not she wants to get pregnant as an American was fascinating to me because it wasn't a religious argument. It wasn't like, Oh, my denomination says this is okay. This is a thing that American women should be entitled to that her husband, her Muslim Brown, violent rapey husband is forcing her to strip from her own body. And that's, that's how, these kinds of stories normalize specific kind of Christian understandings of what it is to be American without naming them as American. Or yeah. sorry, uh, specific kinds of Christianity with and naming them as Christian. Like again, Mahmoudi is never falling back on this is my right as a Christian. It's always this is my right as an American. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's it's fascinating to kind of look back and think that uh, for the positive is that this uh, idea that uh, women are entitled to contraceptive or bodily autonomy is not something that we would see if this if the story were told today from an American perspective. No, it's really Mm -hmm. jarring, honestly. And she talks about contraception all the time in the book because she starts stealing pills from her husband as well. Uh, But it really is just like, this is what Americans get. Like we get the pill. I think it's also a space where... I think a lot of folks don't realize how uh, new access to contraception was for American women, right? Like Griswold v. Connecticut is 1965. That's for married couples. Uh, The decision for single women, I think, is 67 or 68. So this this is only like mm, 10, 15 years tops, but it is an entitlement the way that she's talking about it. Uh, So to see that reversed in my lifetime is pretty trippy. Yeah. So speaking of the violent and the gory, uh, can we talk a little bit about Michelle Remembers? <laughs> sure. Yes, we can. Wow. Uh, what, 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 what do you want to talk about? 
<laughs> so, I mean, uh, could you give a little bit of background on what the, what the book is for you know listeners who haven't heard about it? Oh my goodness. Okay, this is a book that comes out in 1980. It is published by a Canadian psychiatrist and his patient, who later becomes his wife. He has, uh, he says, helped her recover memories of being ritually abused by a satanic coven that included her mother. They kidnapped her. They uh, physically and sexually assaulted her. Um, They terrified her. And through divine intervention, literally in the story, the Virgin Mary shows up, uh, Michelle is able to reject Satan and stay safe and grow up. But the memories are emerging, they realize, because uh, Satan is, again, a, a, a pressing threat. Uh, and so they need to spread the story in order to prepare the world for this uh, new satanic onslaught, um, which doesn't sound like something that would have been published in a nonfiction space, but it was. Uh, it was published with the imprimatur of the Bishop of British Columbia, I believe, of Remy de Roo. Uh, and Smith and Pazder went on the road, not just to promote the, the book itself, but as experts in recovered memories, in interestingly, multiple personality disorder, which we'd now call dis- dissociative identity disorder, despite the fact that uh, Michelle did not have multiple personalities, uh, and in satanic ritual abuse. So when I say that they're on the road as experts, I mean they are giving seminars that people pay to go to. They're showing up at the American Psychiatric Association's national meeting. They are convening workshops for law enforcement and social workers saying this is what satanic ritual abuse looks like. It is happening. It's happening everywhere. You have to be on the lookout for it. And here's how you know what to look for. So they're providing basically a script for identifying satanic ritual abuse. And what we then see is in both court cases where Pazder and Smith are consulting or in spaces where someone involved in a legal case or a social work case or a a mental health case have been exposed to this material, they are identifying satanic ritual abuse in daycares or in people's pasts or in violent crimes. And everyone starts telling a very similar story because they're all working from the same source material. So most scholars identify the publication and I will use this word again, uh, deliberately dissemination of Michelle remembers as the beginning of the satanic panic, which is like a decade plus long period of public anxiety and, uh, Oh, laws get passed. People go to jail. Lives are ruined uh, around the idea that there is a global satanic conspiracy that is preying on white women and children. And it's I mean, it's it, very mainstream. It's it's it's. I think if you didn't live through it, it's it's hard to get a sense of how mainstream it was. But like, this is showing up on on twenty twenty and Geraldo, which like yes, Geraldo is a joke now, but that. <laughs> program, which by the way, you had to watch in real time because that's how TV worked in the 80s. 20 million viewers, 13.5 million viewers showed up for the 2020 piece in 1985. And Jesse Helms, about whom I will say no more, uh, (laughs) entered the transcript of that 2020 episode into the congressional record of the United States as evidence for his motion to deny tax-exempt status to any organizations that trafficked with evil spirits. That's a direct <laughs> quote. Oh, wow. Or <laughs> the powers of the devil. And, and it passed unanimously. The entire Senate of the United States of America in the year of someone's Lord 1985 said, you're right, Jesse Holmes, we shouldn't give tax breaks to witches. Yeah, I mean, it really feels like anytime I read about the satanic panic, it feels like I'm reading about something that happened 500 years ago. It's uh-huh, it's amazing uh-huh, that uh-huh. this is in our lifetime. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and QAnon is pulling a lot of the same levers. Yes, so exactly. That's happening. Yeah. 
I mean, in terms of Michelle Remembers, there's uh, this podcast called You're Wrong About that a great, mm-hmm. I think, four-part series on this. And, and um, one of the hosts talks about how, to a certain extent, it never really ended. It's just taken a new yeah. format. With That's accurate. Yeah, Sarah Marshall. Yeah. We follow each other on Twitter. Sarah Marshall's <laughs> writing a book about the satanic panic now. Yes. So, yeah, there is there is a renewed interest in the, the podcast sphere around these issues. And, yeah, QAnon has done a lot to kick that up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we should say there there was absolutely no proof at all, and there, all signs point to Michelle remembers being completely fabricated or, or imagined, yeah, as the case may be. Yeah, it's it's not just that there's no evidence; there's counter evidence in the case right. of Michelle remembers. So there are pictures of her being at school while she was allegedly abducted. There, you know, are, are no reports of the kind of uh, car crashes that she reports uh, surviving. She in the book says that she had never heard about Christianity before her entire birth family is Catholic. She went to parochial school. So that's, that doesn't sync up. We also now know that the kind of techniques Pazder and other uh, mental health professionals were using to quote unquote, recover memories actually create memories. Um, yep. Human memory is a lot more malleable than a lot of folks realize. And so women diagnosed, and it was overwhelmingly white women, diagnosed as uh, satanic ritual abuse survivors have these memories of things happen to them, happening to them that uh, there there is no corroborative evidence for, which is a hard thing to say to someone who in all likelihood probably did survive some form of sexual trauma. Um, And in a, a broader scale, the Federal Bureau of Investigation spent something like seven years and $750,000 of the taxpayers' money trying to find forensic evidence of satanic ritual abuse. And the investigator, Ken Lanning, published in 1992, January 1992, and said, yeah, no, we looked. We really looked. We can't find anything. And we're worried that more mundane instances of child sex abuse are being ignored or overlooked or pushed to the side because they don't have this kind of spectacular element to them. That's exactly. I mean, I always think that, you know, people get so hung up on these kind of uh, incredible stories of satanic ritual abuse because they don't want to confront the fact that most child sexual abuse is happening in someone's household, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your school. It's it's not this kind of uh, sensationalized thing. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that is the argument of the book is that uh, abuse happens because we let it happen. It happens everywhere. And the cases that I'm pulling out are spaces where stories about abuse did actually inspire action, which is very rare. And it inspires this over the top, spectacular performative reaction, because it lets us pretend that we are not complicit in child sex abuse or in sex abuse broadly, right? It's someone else's problem. It is a monster. We would never be those people. And if we treat this one isolated incident that just keeps happening over and over over again, if we just do this one thing, then we will have fixed it. And then we have gotten rid of the, the monstrous problem that is not who we are. And as you're saying, it is exactly who we are. Abuse happens in our homes, in our communities. It happens at the hands of people we know and love and trust. And until we can acknowledge that, we can't do anything to disrupt or prevent child sex abuse or sexual violence. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, as, as we all know now, all, all of this time with the Catholic Church was one of the biggest perpetrators of this. Very much so. And that is another space of... <sighs> disjuncture for me. And it's it's where I end the book because we have very clear evidence, not just that uh, clergy were participating in child sex abuse, but that the magisterium, the mechanisms of the Roman Catholic Church in the US and beyond knew about the abuse that was happening and let it kept, keep happening rather than say, Uh, we need to take responsibility for this. This keeps happening because we let it keep happening. So priests even that got caught in Boston, rather than being defrocked, were moved to the American Southwest, where they were allowed to abuse uh, Native and Latinx kids with impunity for decades. Mm -hmm. And the, the the space of tension that I wanted to sit in as I was closing the book is, one, this is happening while 
Roman Catholic theology is becoming the arbiter for American sexual morality, right? So you have then Bishop Bernard Law delivering very public speeches about the sanctity of the lives of children as a way to argue against contraception and abortion while covering up massive institutionalized sex abuse within the Catholic Church. But also, if we look at something like the FLDS case that I look at, uh, this was a community that's relatively small. One report of sex abuse was enough to bring in dozens of law enforcement agencies and, again, armored personnel vehicles. The largest custodial seizure of children in American history, more than 400 kids were taken at one time because the state of Texas treated it as one household. And to get their kids back, every single adult living at Yearning for Zion, the FLDS ranch, had to register as a sex offender, not because they themselves had personally harmed children, but because they allowed their kids to live at Yearning for Zion where abuse had happened. And abuse did happen at Yearning for Zion. It happened statistically less than we would expect in a community of that size, Mm -hmm. but that is not in any way to excuse abuse. Abuse is wrong and should be addressed and prevented wherever we can. At the same time, we know massive sexual abuse was being perpetrated and covered up within the Roman Catholic Church. And no one is sending tanks into parish parking lots on Sunday. No (laughs) one is forcing Roman Catholic parents to register as sex offenders for letting their kids be altar servers, right? So the space I want us to, to really look at is where do we draw these lines of minoritization? How do we use sex to reinforce what kind of religion is acceptable and then also sit with this like we've decided that a certain amount of sex abuse i guess is fine as long as the religion is big and big enough and normal enough and white enough because yes there have been some important disclosures of information around the roman catholic sex abuse certainly the the pennsylvania commission being one of the most recent and largest but we had known for at least 20 years that this kind of abuse was happening in Boston and in other places. And none of the states, even Pennsylvania, which is the most actively litigious around this, have done very much to change the statute of limitations to lobby any sort of criminal or financial penalties. Like, yes, there there have been some payouts, but also the Roman Catholic Church is not hurting for money. There has been no political censure, again, of Roman Catholic officials. There have been no political consequences for Roman Catholic authorities. Again, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is more influential politically than it has ever been in the history of the U.S. So as a country, as a political governing body, we have basically decided, like, that's bad, but not bad enough to actually either punish you for or actively try to prevent moving forward. You know, I just thought of this now, but there's another kind of minority religious community that has very high rates of abuse, which is the Amish community. Mm. Um, And yet there's a certain perception, I think, in the United States that sort of a, what's the word I'm looking for, idealization of the Amish and this kind Mm -hmm. of simplicity. So it's almost taboo to bring that up. Yeah. Um, I I am certainly not an expert in this area, but there are a lot of spaces where we just kind of turn a blind eye. Um, And the the spaces that I'm particularly thinking of are instances of abuse that happen in black churches, instances of abuse that happening in like Mm -hmm. International Society for Krishna Consciousness, um, better known as Hare Krishnas, right? There are Mm -hmm. spaces where we've decided that like, meh, it's not our business. And we don't have to care about those kids or we don't have to care about those people. And so, yeah, the the drawing of lines around whose sex abuse is a spectacular crime that we have to abject from the national body versus whose sex abuse is like, oh, well, that happens. Let's keep trucking uh, is really interesting. Do you get the sense with, with the under the banner of heaven and this kind of demonization of the FLDS, has that had any impact on the way that the mainstream LDS church has been perceived? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they have been... Okay, so I, I want to say out loud, too, that uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not consider anyone but themselves as course, legitimately yeah. Mormon. I, I know, I know you know, but listeners might not. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
LDS has for decades uh, been really working on its public image as mainstream Christian, as uh, very white, despite the fact that most of their their converts are not white at this point, uh, and quintessentially American. So the kind of specter of polygamy uh, is something that they do an awful lot of work to try to distance themselves from. And so anytime, excuse me, an FLDS or the Kingstons or even like a sister wives space pops up, there's a lot of work uh, in the Mormon PR machine to explain why and how this is not Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But I mean, again, we, we saw this even when Mitt Romney was running for president, whichever mm-hmm. time, as folks wanted to talk a lot about his relatives that moved to Mexico in part to continue living uh, the principle of plural marriage. So it is still very much something that Mormons who are in the public sphere are pushing back against and saying, no, 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 that's not us. And that that impulse to say, no, no, that's not us, is one that I find really important because we're not rejecting the premises on which groups get minoritized. We're just trying to put ourselves on the right line, right side of that line, right? Roman Catholics did this. Roman Catholics did not say, you should not tell Americans how they should be having sex or where they should fit racially. I thought this was a country that made space for everybody. The argument is, no, we are doing sex right. We are the right kind of white. You're right to draw that line. You're just wrong about where we fit on this scale. And we see the same thing for a lot of newer kinds of religion, too. Laura Vance actually has a great article about the ways that uh, LDS and Seventh-day Adventists really doubled down on homophobia uh, as they became closer to the American religious mainstream. So spaces where we use sexual intolerance of difference to establish ourselves and our tradition as right, as normal, as American. So as we kind of get towards the end of our interview, what do you hope will be the key takeaways uh, for your, of your book for readers? Oh, um, is that all? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think it's important we know that anytime we're talking about sex in what's now the United States, we're also talking about religion, even if those spaces aren't overtly religious. So just because someone's not saying, well, I'm Christian and here's how you should have sex, doesn't mean that Christianity isn't playing a role in how we understand what moral or right or correct or American sex looks like. Uh, Same thing with religion. Our understandings of religion are inflected by Christianity whether we realize it or not. So on the podcast, we always say religion is not done with you, whether or not you're done with religion. So yeah, yeah, I think that is the big takeaway. There's also a space where I'm hoping that folks pay attention to, honestly, even crap media as spaces where right kinds of sex, right kind of religion, right kinds of nationalism get negotiated. So I think it's easy to blow off an Under the Banner of Heaven as like a stupid ahistorical book or uh, Not Without My Daughter as like a dumb movie that Sally Field did a a while ago. People read these books, they watch these movies, and they take them really seriously, whether or not scholars do. So it's my hope that scholars will also start taking seriously the seemingly unserious media that truly does help shape opinions in really lasting and tenacious ways uh, around how religion, sexuality, and nationalism work. Oh, can you talk a bit about your current project? Oh, <laughs> yeah. It is called Cults Incorporated. <laughs> I have spent most of my uh, professional life trying not to write a book about cults, and I finally <laughs> gave up. I, I quit. Um the <laughs> America wins. You win, America. I'm writing the cults book. Uh, and what happened was that in the past five years, but truly in the last eight to 12 months, there has been an intensification of cult discourse in public. So wanting to talk about QAnon as a cult, wanting to talk about the 45th president as like Jim Jones that was trending on Twitter for a while. Here's why it's a Mm. cult. Here's why it's not a cult. Here's why uh, Republicanism is a cult. It's not a cult. 
And I have had it. I'm <laughs> done. So, and the, the reason that this is so infuriating for me is one, people get the history wrong. We misremember what happened at Jonestown. We misremember what happened with the move bombing, if we remember that the move bombing happened at all. Mm. But over and above that, I don't want it to just be a fact-checking project. What I want is to look at who profits when we get this stuff wrong. So what do we gain by misremembering Jonestown? What happens when we don't talk about MOVE as a religious movement? Does that make it okay to, I don't know, steal the corpses of their murdered children so that we can use them in Coursera classes at friggin' Princeton and Penn, which is a thing that happened? Yeah. Uh what are the fundraising benefits of calling QAnon a cult, right? For mm-hmm. conservative folks who find the Q narrative compelling, right? They, they are using drinking the Kool-Aid as a test of loyalty as, yes, this is it. But also on liberal sides are like, oh, look at the crazies. They are religious and they'll believe anything and give us money so we can fix this. We don't have to pay attention to the filibuster. Don't worry about it. Just give us some more money. Um or the spaces where law enforcement throws money at like responding to cults in ways that just don't happen anymore. I am haunted. There was a clip on Jalen Oliver this year of federal law enforcement training to like infiltrate a cult compound as though a compound of white people stockpiling guns would even like raise an eyebrow for federal law (laughs) enforcement anymore. Like what the hell, man? So who's profiting off this idea of cults and what happens when we as a country just kind of say like, yeah, some religions are crazy. Like if you take religion too far, it's just nuts. And Mm-hmm. similar questions to what I'm asking in Amusing Religion, except that I'm spending more time specifically on the the commodification and the, the profit motive of marginalizing and minoritizing uh, groups that don't fit into a, a good religion mold. That's very important, very timely. So I, I will look yeah, forward to reading that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so where can our listeners find you online? The answer is always Twitter. It's just, it's just <laughs> it's too often it's Twitter. So I am MPGPHD on Twitter. I also have a website, which is Megan, M-E-G-A-N dot, or sorry, <clears throat> Megan dash Goodwin, M-E-G-A-N dash Goodwin dot com. Uh, but yeah, this is the short answer is Twitter. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to New Books and Religion. I've been speaking with Dr. Megan Goodwin about abusing religion, literary persecution, uh, sex scandals, and American minority religions, which is now available from Rutgers University Press. Dr. Goodwin, thank you again for joining me. It's such a fascinating topic, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thanks so much for, for chatting with me.